Hey everyone, exciting announcement here from the Blockworks Podcast Network. We are hiring two podcast hosts to build a show with us called Lightspeed. TLDR of Lightspeed is that it is a show for builders, tinkerers, and lovers of technology. It's a callback to the heyday of Silicon Valley where great tech was built in garages, not in corporate fortresses, and was truly the Wild West. Lightspeed is an exploration of crypto from the perspective of a builder and an engineer who's designing for scale and is interested in onboarding the next billion users into crypto. If this show sounds exciting to you, you have a background in podcast hosting or content creation, go to the careers page of BlockWorks. That's blockworks.co slash careers. I've also linked it in the show notes here. You can just click there. It'll take you right to the page. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm Mike Ippolito underscore. You can just slide right into my DMs and we'll set up some time to talk. Would love to hear from you. We are super, super excited about this show. So please apply. You know, I had a, I have had a go-to dad joke for a long time, but I, I heard another one that I liked quite a bit, which is, uh, what did the green grape say to the purple grape? Oh God, what did he say? Breathe, dude. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and with that uh, terrible intro, we can just dive right in here. Welcome back, uh, everyone, to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by uh, Jim Bianco, repeat guest of On the Margin and of Fintwit fame. Jim, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so we were just sort of getting into it uh, before we hopped on air here. But, you know, I would love to just kind of, uh, you've been actually in Hawaii for the last uh, couple of weeks, um, and there's been a lot of stuff happening in in markets. So before we get into some of the more specific questions about uh, banks and what we think the Fed is going to be up to, can you kind of just give me like the 10,000 foot view of how you're thinking about things right now? <coughs> yeah. Um the old line that the Fed hikes until something breaks seems to be coming back into force. Now, mm. the problem with that line, it, it well, first of all, the, the thing about that line is it's usually true. The problem with that line is what is it that actually is the breakage? Because you could have argued a 25% decline in the stock market, the worst total return year in the history of the bond market, the UK LDI problem. We had two negative quarters of GDP in the first and second quarter of 22. Were those the things that broke that, you know, would cause this to happen? Or is it this unfolding banking crisis? Um, mm. I'm guilty of thinking that some of those things along the way last year were, hey, the Fed hikes till something breaks and look, we're breaking things. But it mm. really does feel like, no, this banking thing is the breakage because this is directly impacted by monetary policy where those other ones we're more indirectly impacted by monetary policy. Yeah, well said, Jim. You know, I'm I'm sort of reminded a little bit of that old uh, that old chestnut of what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object, and that's what it seems like the Fed is sort of dealing with here today. Because on the one hand, you need a functioning banking system, right, for a country, and people are frankly publicly starting to question whether or not our fractional reserve banking system makes sense, which I'm sure is not what the Fed wants to be seeing. On the other hand, the sixth handle on inflation has not gone away, and it's right there in their dual mandate for you know price stability, sort of mandate number one. So, how do you think the Fed kind of balances this or walks this tightrope? Well, I think what we got to do is we got to put some definitions on this. You know, what is a bank? <clears throat> and mm. I'm being very specific. You, me, a lot of people watching this, we're going to think of a bank as a as a warehouse where we keep our money. You know, I stick my money in there. It's protected. It won't get caught on fire. And I get an interest rate. Uh, that's not the way the Fed looks at it. And that's not the way a lot of bankers look at it and a lot of businesses. A bank is a place where you go to get a loan. 
and the and it is the credit intermediary between depositors or people with capital for people that want capital. And to be blunt about it, the, the Fed thinks that the primary focus or the primary mission of a bank is to hand out a loan first. Second is to protect your money. And so anything that would get in the way of handing out loans, because that is the lifeblood of the economy, um, is, the, is the availability of loans, is what gets them very, very concerned. So let me give you a different definition now. This is a liquidity crisis, not a solvency crisis. And just to be clear, because these are fancy words, solvency crisis is a bank takes my deposits. And what do they do with them in a fractional reserve system? They leverage them up and they buy securities and they hand out loans. Well, if they do a bunch of loans that default and they buy a bunch of securities that lose a lot of value, they then have assets, because those are the assets of a bank, that are less than the liability of a bank. A liability of a bank is their deposits. That's insolvency. Mm. That's an insolvency problem. But what we're having is a liquidity problem. <clears throat> and a liquidity problem is the bank is fine. So I'd even go as far to say that in February, Silvergate, Signature, and Silicon Valley were okay. They were. Mm. They had issues. They had issues. They were not out of the woods, but they were hanging in there. But what really pushed them over the edge was confidence in crypto after FTX pushed Silvergate and Signature over the side. And then mm. problems with tech pushed Silvergate over the side so that the depositors asked for their money back. So if everybody shows up at the bank and says, give me back my cash, it's the old, go Google it, it's the old bank run from It's a Wonderful Life. Well, your money's not here. Your money's in Mr. Jones's house or your money's in you know, uh, Mr. Smith's business. And I don't have it as cash right now, this very minute. Well, that's what happened. We had a liquidity crisis. Now, the mm. Fed, I think, is looking at a liquidity crisis is saying that's not a systemic problem. I actually think it is. And I can hmm. explain that. But they're saying this is what they always say. This is three bad bankers that did acted irresponsibly. And it's not part of a bigger problem because mm. they view the world as lending. And this was not a lending problem. Um, mm. And so they can fix this problem, they think, through regulation or, or whatever, or basically punishing the bad actors. But I do think this was a systemic problem. It was about interest rates. It was about, first and foremost, keeping them at zero for 14 years, creating mm. all kinds of incentive, bad incentives and bad, uh, bad structures, and then raising them rapidly after misreading, after misreading inflation, and then raising them rapidly and not understanding the impact it was going to have on the banking system. So it's not just that they raised rates too fast. It was also, we got to give them equal blame for the 14 years of zero before that. And by the way, that falls on Yellen and Bernanke too. It doesn't just mm -hmm. all fall on Powell. Powell is all about the hike. Yeah. Okay. I've, I really like that framing of the U.S. people kind of thinking about bank as a way to warehouse your cash and keep that in a safe spot. And then sort of the feds or other bankers sort of uh, viewpoint being like, this is the lubrication of the economy, right? The extension and contraction of credit. So one thing I've been thinking a, a good amount about is where yield curve inversions sort of fall here, because, you know, usually that tends to happen, right? Like we all see yield curve inversion. That's a good predictor of recession and stocks go down. But I'm wondering from the vantage of a policymaker, 
you know, policymakers understand that an inverted yield curve, frankly, makes it really difficult for a bank to function, you know, and, you know, Powell actually addressed in his last FOMC, right, that this credit contraction in the bank is going to be equivalent to some form of rate hikes. So do you think they kind of look at the yield curve inversion as almost like, hey, this is actually going to help, you know, eventually as kind of a credit contraction and maybe a couple banks go bust, but really I'm just going to make their lives tough until it doesn't make much sense for them to extend credit and it's going to help further their objectives. You know, I hope they don't view it that way. I know everyone, oh, this is going to make the Fed's life easier. Yes, like a blowtorch will get rid of termites in my house. Uh, you know, that's not, yeah, I can, it will work. They'll get rid of the termites, but that's yeah. not exactly the way I want to do it. So I, I detest this idea that if we blowtorch the economy, then the Fed can take credit that inflation has gone away. That is a lose scenario. So I hope they don't view it that way. But as far as getting back to your question about the yield curve, Powell's been asked about the yield curve for many months, and he's been yeah. very dismissive of the signal of the yield curve. And the Fed has invented their own ver version of the forward six, 18 month forward, three month yield curve divided by the three month yield curve. And yeah, I say that dismissively because it's all this complicated forward math, you know, twisting logic to find a yield curve that's not inverted to say, hey, there's no problem. And then they just do a complete 180 and say, oh, no, no, this is all about the inverted yield curve is, is mm. where this is. But to answer your question about the yield curve, yeah, it has a great track record of predicting a recession because when short, no, the normal yield curve is long-term rates are higher than short-term rates. Mm -hmm. But when it inverts and short-term rates are higher, <clears throat> short-term rates are so dependent on monetary policy. It's a market signal that the Federal Reserve or the central bank whatever country you're in, has policy rates too high. And the market mm. is telling you that longer rates being lower, you're going to break things and you're going to cause a recession. And, and we're going to just pile into long duration assets because they have very little credit risk and they're going to fall in yield. So that that's been a market signal that rates have been too high. Now, I think the mistake we all made might have been for most of last year, we looked at the yield curve and we said, hey, it's inverted. That means the Fed's got policy rates too high. They're making a mistake. And then we said, that's because there's no inflation, is what we said. But what mm -hmm. I think we're learning is that's because the banking system is at risk. And the banking mm -hmm. system can't handle rates at these levels. That's what's becoming clearer right now than we've seen before. And that, like I said before, this is not about three bad bankers. And this is about a systemic problem within the banking system that interest rates are too high for them and that they're struggling to try and figure out what to do with those interest rates. What is that that is the problem? Their deposit rates, when you put your money in the bank and if, if everybody's run the Chase, um, Chase right now, I looked it up yesterday, is still offering you one basis point, one whole basis point. One basis point. But if you're a preferred customer, they'll double it and you'll get two basis points of yield. Um, you know, and uh, but if you picked up your phone and you spent five minutes with your phone on your Chase app, you could switch to a Chase uh, money market fund through Chase Securities <clears throat> and you could get 475 or 450 or 460, depending on which one you wanted to use. Now, that is the absolute rational thing to do. So I suspect, you know, when people ask me what's going to happen with banks, they're going to have deposit outflows. 
They're going to have them week after week after week. And we'll overanalyze, was this week too much versus last week? No, there's no reason for the deposit outflows to stop. You're saying Mm -hmm. to me that everybody's going to say, you know what? I got $250,000 in this bank and they're giving me one basis point. So I'm making $12 a year in, 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 in interest. I could spend five minutes on my phone and I could maybe move it to four and three quarters and I could get $14,000 a year in interest. Nah, mm-hmm. I'd rather I'd rather speculate about what the Shanghai upgrade means. And I'd rather talk about what, what coin I should degen in. I won't spend the three minutes to do that. Of course you're going to do that. And of mm-hmm. course that, that's going to happen. It's not going to all happen in the same week so that it will sink another bank. But the deposit bleed will continue and continue and continue. And then as deposits fall, banks are going to turn to the regular economy and they're going to say, you know what? I don't have the deposit base to hand out that loan to you that I promised. So that apartment building you were going to build or that restaurant you were going to expand, I'm sorry, I can't help you anymore. And that's where I think we're going. And that's the big concern right now with the economy. Mm. Let me ask you this, Jim, because you've been doing a really great job of kind of pounding the table on the spread in between the the yield that you can earn in money markets versus what what banks are sort of offering their customers. If if I had to like put myself in in a banker's shoes, there was a a quote. You know, my colleague Jack did a great interview on this, and you know, he said something. It was a, this was a quote from uh, after there was one of those big bank runs back in the early 1900s. Of sometimes it's actually easier to deal with uh, despair than prosperity, which basically means like when banks get a ton of inflows and deposits, sometimes that's a really good thing. Sometimes it's also a problem, right? Because you've got to turn around and find investment opportunities to to park those deposits in. Do you think there's any part of these bankers that are that, you know, the point of view of these banks saying, you know what, I'm actually kind of looking out there into the world and I don't see a whole lot of great investable opportunities. I'm actually okay with having some fewer deposits in my bank because my investable world of stuff that I can park that in on the asset side is probably a little bit smaller. Uh, I'll push back and say, no, no banker ever does that because every banker, <laughs> every banker, every yeah. banker is about how do I maximize my profits just a little bit more this year versus next year versus the year after maximize profits, maximize profits, maximize profits. Mm. And by the way, you said, since we're on uh your podcast, you like if I put my shoes in the bank, if I put my sh- if I pretend that I'm a banker, and mm. since we're talking to a crypto crowd, am I supposed to then go to the FBI and turn myself in as a crime against humanity because I'm a banker? Boy, <laughs> 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 uh, but seriously, um, I think the problem is this gets back to zero interest rates. So mm-hmm. Silicon Valley Bank doubled their asset base, um, you know, uh, doubled their asset base at very low interest rates. Money poured in. When, they, when interest rates <clears throat> were somewhere down around zero. And then they turned around and they bought securities and they handed out loans. And I'm going to keep this simple for uh, just for illustrative purposes. And those securities and those loans had yields of one to 3% because that's what you were getting when we had zero interest rates pre-COVID. Uh, and so now the Fed has raised rates to four. And all of those securities and loans are yielding less than four. And their deposit base is screaming, I can move to a money market fund and get four and a half. Why don't you give me four and a half? Because I'm only earning three at best, maybe two and a half or so on the current investments of securities and loans that I have. If I offer you four, I'm going to be at a permanent loss position. Mm. 
So this is why this is such an intractable problem for these banks. So we say, you know, why don't they raise deposit rates? Because they're not earning 4%. You know, that we would say, earn, bank, Chase, raise your deposit rate to 4 all right, it's not 475, which I could get in a money market fund, but close enough for government work. I'm not going to pick up my phone and transfer for 75 basis points. But the answer is because their deposit base that they've already invested isn't earning them 4% in the first place. Roger. So mm-hmm. this is the intractable problem. What's the fix? Well, the Fed could lower the funds rate and bring those market rates back down to three or two. But as you pointed out, we have a 6% handle on inflation. And if that doesn't come down anytime soon, that is going to be a problem. Or is the Fed supposed to abandon the inflation problem? Jay Powell starts every press conference by saying his job is to serve the American people. And then he defines it. And I'll use my, I'll use my terms to define this. Mm. This is not exactly what he says. 57% of the American public has less, can come up with less than $1,000 in an emergency. That means they live paycheck to paycheck, they rent, they have no assets, they don't own a brokerage account. So if the inflation rate is six and they're getting a pay increase of five at their job, they're buying less every year. And Jay mm. Powell says every press conference, I'm, I'm here to help those people get the inflation rate below you know, get the inflation rate below what your wage increase is so your real purchasing power isn't eroded. Is he mm. now supposed to turn around and say, you know, that the the, the, the fees at Augusta because the master's is coming up is really expensive for these bankers and they can't take a loss. So we got to cut the funds rate 200 basis points. No, he's not going to cut the funds rate at all until he sees solid evidence that the inflation rate is down. Not that it will go down. Not that there's a theory it will go down. Is that it has gone down. So he's mm. not going to move that. That's why what I'm trying to say is this is such an intractable problem that we've got right now. The banks can't hold on to their deposits because they can't raise rates high enough. The Fed is, is you know, there's four Fed speakers this week that have come out and said, no, we're going to raise rates again because we're so worried about inflation. I get it. You're talking about the 57% that don't have less than $1,000. And so this is why this is such an intractable problem that is not, there's no easy fix. Hey, Jay, do this. And the problem goes away. There's only trade-offs here right now. Yeah, Jim, I'm in complete agreement with that. So I want to move on to sort of inflation here in, in a minute and your thoughts on that. But, you know, before we before we leave banking, can you just give me a sense of like, you know, you've word, used the word systemic a couple of times, like how much should we still be worried about the banks, right? So we've had a couple of relatively high profile failures. First Republic is still alive, albeit trading 90% down from where it used to be. Uh, we've had a little bit of uh, you know stress and disruption over in Europe with the failure of Credit Suisse and that um, acquisition by UBS. Um, and then we've we've kind of got the emergence, at least at the beginnings of the emergence, sort of a two-tiered banking system over here in the U.S. where the big banks, right, the Fed has come out and said, hey, we've got your back. And then the small regional banks, which by the way, own 70% of the outstanding uh, CRE debt. They might they might have to fend for themselves. So can can you just kind of give us you know kind of bookend everything that we're talking about the banks like how much worry still is there for that sector? Well, I guess it gets back to my original definitions. If you're thinking of a bank as a money warehouse, how worried am I that my money somehow will be impaired in a bank 
not very. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be very worried at all that there's going to be. I would be surprised if there was even another failure at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, you could technically argue that First Republic and Pacific West are somewhat failures only in that they couldn't survive without assistance from larger players. First Republic has got a consortium of 11 banks headed by JP Morgan that has pumped $30 billion into them. Uh, Pacific West went to Atlas, which is a fund that's run by Apollo, and they pumped a billion and a half dollars into them. That short of that, they might be at the FDIC's door. Uh, that's, mm. you know, and the stock price reflects that down 80% on First Republic and down 60% on Pacific West. So, yeah, you might get more of that, but you call it, let's call that private sector bailout. But I'd be shocked if we're going to get a, another FDIC bailout. So from the money warehouse perspective, I'm not too concerned. From yeah. the lending perspective that I want the economy to move forward, there are business people that want working capital loans, expand their businesses want to do some real estate deals, um, that the ability to go back to the banks that they've always used and say, hey, here's my new deal. I want to do this. Sorry, sorry. Deposits outflows just won't stop. And we're just not sure of what's going on. No more lending. And then that I'm worried about. That could create a recession, unemployment, a lot of angst. Oh, yeah, it might also bring down inflation. But like I said, that's like taking a blowtorch to your house to get rid of the termite problem. I, you know, it's not, that is a way to do it, but that's not the preferred way to do it. Mm. And, uh, you know, in terms of the commercial real estate, there's been a lot of sort of early talk, right, that that might be something something to worry quite a bit about just because same problem roughly that the banks are facing, right? There's just a different uh, sort of forcing function on that. And we kind of saw this early with uh, with BREIT gating withdrawals. But basically, the idea being a lot of this commercial real estate was financed at rates that, first of all, they were variable rates, right? And the yield that they're getting on those assets no longer really works, right? So the, the, the variable rate that you're paying on that debt might have exceeded the yield that you're getting on the commercial real estate assets. And there are big question marks, right, about how that might resolve itself. So I'd be very curious to sort of get your your standpoint on that. Yeah. What's happened post-COVID, first of all, we have to basically take commercial real estate and break it into separate sectors. Mm-hmm. There's, um, there's say, apartment real estate, building apartment buildings. And that market's okay. I mean, it's, 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 it's doing, you know, it's got its issues here and there, but it's doing okay. There's, there's, industrial and uh, that that is very dependent on the economy, whether or not the economy is going up or down. And then there's office real estate. That's a mess. That is a complete mm. mess. Um, the only people that don't think it's a mess are the executives at office real estate companies. But other than that, everybody else thinks, oh, there was one on, on Bloomberg TV today. And it's like, man, what planet does this guy live on? That everybody's mm. returning back to the office and we're going to be fine. And we're going, to re- we're going to make some of our buildings into residential. By the way, the problem with residential, turning buildings into uh, 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 office buildings into residential is uh, office buildings have giant footprints and mm. nobody, nobody wants an apartment with no window. So what do you do mm. with the interior of these buildings? And people said, well, maybe you make a gym. What? We're going to bail out Peloton because we're going to have four, 40 Pelotons in every floor in every one of these buildings. We're going to have a 40 gyms in every one of these buildings. That This is a problem for a lot of the bigger um, offices. And it's unbelievably expensive to change an office building 
into residential too with the building codes and stuff. So it's the office part that is a big problem. And I think that that is where we're going to have to see with the loans coming due, with the rates that they've had, and whether or not we're really starting to think about what it is that it means for an office and what we're going to do with office real estate. If you want a good example of how the office real estate market is going to go is look at the downtown financial district in Manhattan after 9-11. A lot of companies bailed out of uh, that area, except for the New York Stock Exchange. And a lot of it became residential. As a matter of fact, if you've ever been down to the New York Stock Exchange or down to FIDI, I have an adult uh, daughter that actually lives 200 yards from the New York Stock Exchange. It's all residential now. There's a Montessori school 100 feet away from the New York Stock Exchange. Um, there, you're, you'd be more likely to see people pushing strollers with little kids around in that neighborhood than you would seeing businessmen walking around in that neighborhood. It's become a complete residential neighborhood. That's 22 years in the making after 9-11. And it's been a lot of angst. And it wasn't easy and it wasn't a straight line. So now we're going to write that big for all resident all office real estate throughout the entire country. That's going to be a massive, massive change. And a lot of that commercial real estate is not going to be worth what they thought it was going to be worth. If nothing else, oh, I have this building and I've got this loan and mortgage on it. And we'll just change it into we're just going to change it into residential. It's going to cost as much as rebuilding the building to change it into residential. It's not cheap to do that. So we're going to get that extra money from. And then how are you going to make that financing? How are you going to make those economics work that you've now 2x the cost of your building? So, yeah, commercial real estate. Depending on which one you talk about, office, I think, is in a big world of hurt. Apartments, not so much. Commercial, like I said, industrial, that that's kind of cyclical with the economy. But if the economy is going down, there's going to be issues there, too. Mm. Yeah, well said. I'm in complete agreement. Definitely makes sense to, to break it apart. And uh, you had me thinking with the FIDA example. I actually lived there my first year in New York as well. Um, so good, good uh, mental model for me. You know, the uh, Montessori, like to- you know the Montessori school I'm talking about? I actually don't, but I went to a Montessori school myself. It's on Broad Street. It's on Broad Street, just just across the street and kitty corner, you know, uh, right across the street from the entrance of the um, New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, I was on Water. I think was uh, that was the first one. Jason, I had it was a hole. I'd actually just as soon not revisit the memory of that apartment. It was when I when I worked in when I worked in New York. Fifty Five Water was was one of the big trading buildings and first New York Plaza (laughs) because they were gigantically large footprints because you had those big football arena sized trading floors in those. Um, yeah. you know, and like I said, I don't know how you turn that into residential now. Nobody wants an interior bill and you don't, you don't want to pay a million dollars for a view of the Harbor, you know, uh, in a three bedroom apartment or $2 million down there. And then across, 10 feet across the hall is an interior apartment with no bill, with no windows. And that goes for $200,000. You don't want that mix of people in on the same floor. I I know that sounds like uh, profiling or something terrible, but look, that's the way we all live our life, right? Where you, yeah. you you live in a neighborhood with people that are similar to you, at least mm-hmm. economically similar to you, economically mm-hmm. similar to you, and you don't want to mix yeah. those economics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, little little apartment alpha, by the way, in case anyone never uh, never live above a restaurant. I'll tell you that that was my big takeaway from uh, from my time down on Water Street. So, um, if you're getting an apartment, do not do that. 
Jim, I want to I wanna switch to to get your thoughts on inflation and where we're at there. So yeah, very telling, right? Four, four members of the Fed basically said, hey, uh, we still think we have room to hike. We're staying here until the job is done, et cetera. The market, based on Fed funds futures and looking at the two-year, doesn't necessarily believe them. Uh, I guess really the question here is, what does Chair Powell end up doing? Because it's not a democracy over there in the Fed, right? It's a it's a dictatorship. So if you had to kind of take on the perspective of Chair Powell here, what do you think he's thinking about all this? Well, I think, first of all, the problem that he has is that he's got to own this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we actually commented on this today that uh, you're right. Everybody at the Fed is saying we're going to hike in May. And the market, at least this morning when I last looked, was putting a 39% chance that the Fed was going to hike in May, less than 50. So the market is saying, I don't believe you. So what we're basically waiting for is the two most important people at the Fed to come out and tell us what they're going to do. The first one is Jay Powell. You know, just Jay, you're going to have to give a speech and you're going to have to just say what's going to happen in May. And then it's on you. It's, It's on your policy. Or the second most important person in the Fed, and that's Nick Timoros of the Wall Street Journal, could come out and basically say the same thing uh, as well, that this is what the Fed is going to do. Now, they'll probably have to do it in about two weeks because that's when the Fed blackout period comes. But that's what we're waiting on. To your larger question about inflation, um, I have been an inflationista. I still am an inflationista. And what I mean by that is I've argued that this is a post-COVID economy, another fancy word, which means things have changed. And one of the things that have changed is our tastes, our preferences have changed. Work from home offices, just what we were talking about before, is a big reason why our tastes and preferences have changed. And because of that, we've got more frictions in the economy. We've got more bottlenecks in the economy. We relieve some you know, with the supply chain. We've got others and that we're going to run at a persistently higher level of inflation than we have in the past. I have also agreed with Chairman Paul, you've got to keep the inflation rate under wage growth because over half the country doesn't own SPY or doesn't have a MetaMask wallet. And they're like, okay, I mean, I'm getting a 4% wage hike at at my job and inflation is six. But, you know, my my portfolio mooned or my or my home mooned and I'm OK, net, net. They don't know. They don't have that. And so I agree with him that that he has to keep the inflation rate at least under wage growth to, to some degree. And that has been where their focus has been. Now, where I disagreed with him was he waited ridiculously too long to start dealing with this problem. And, you know, by not raising rates until May of 22. And then he raised them way too fast. You know, I'm not the banking regulator. He is. He should have understood that the stresses he was putting on the banking system by doing that. And he didn't. And so I do think that we have an inflation problem. I don't think it's necessarily going to go away. The final thing I'll say about inflation is Wall Street likes to say inflation's peaked. And I'm like, yes, that's the easiest call in the world. It's peaked. It better. Because if it's going to stay at 9%, which is where it was last June, We've got really big problems. But the real question is, is it going back to two, and I'll use the phrase organically, meaning, I mean, if you want me to get the inflation rate back to two, like I said, blowtorch the economy. And there you go. There's no more inflation. But but is it going to go back to two with a growing economy and stay there by itself? I've argued no. 
It's not going to until we recognize this is a post-COVID economy and we restructure the economy. That's a fancy way of saying spend trillions of dollars in many, many years changing a lot of things about the economy to reduce those frictions, to get the inflation rate back to a long run rate of 2%. And so I agree with him that inflation is a problem. And But where he made the mistake was he's put us, again, I want to say in an intractable position. If you cut rates to help the banks, you've told the 57% you're on your own. If you don't mm-hmm. cut rates and you keep raising rates to try and bring down inflation, you you risk blowtorching the economy uh, because mm-hmm. the banks are going to continue. People are going to continue to reach into their pocket, pull out their phone, move their money to a money market account, and the banks are going to lose deposits and they can't hand out loans. And so, mm-hmm. there, like I said, there's no, hey, do A and B and this problem goes away. There's only trade-offs right now with this problem. And I think the bank stocks get it. I know people are looking at the S&P going, hey, it's recovered because there's no banking problem. Well, did somebody tell the bank stocks? Because the regional bank index made a new low yesterday, the day before we were recording. It's not recovering at all um, in terms of what's been happening there. And the volatility in the bond market, it you know, you know, the move index is the equivalent of the VIX in the stock market. It's at yeah. one of the highest levels we've ever seen. If you don't know what mm-hmm. the move is, it's like it's the version of the uh, of the bond market breathing through a paper bag right now. It's so <laughs> hyperventilating about what's going on. It doesn't see a, it doesn't see the banking problem as being over. Bank stocks mm. think we still have a problem. The bond market still thinks we have a problem. The S&P is number go up, but it, okay, I've seen this movie before where the S&P is number go up and in other sectors of the market in the bond market have problems. And it usually turns out that the bond market is not always, but more right than the stock market. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you there, Jim. So, what do you what do you think we end up kind of getting here? Because right, like, oftentimes people put this in very, um, you know, I'm blanking on the word here, but kind of this or that, right? And uh, either we're going to have a banking crisis, or you know, inflation is just going to continue to rage. They, they binary. Gonna, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People tend to think about it this in very binary terms, where you know, like usually the way these things sort of play out is in some sort of middle ground here. So. You know, one one sort of idea that's been floated, and I, this is you know controversial, and there are a lot of very smart people that don't agree with this. But like, I'm just, I always try to put myself in the shoes of like, if I was making these decisions, like, what what would I do? What would my playbook be? And they've already done part of the playbook, right? They've started to shore things up in the banking system with BTFP. Not a full fix, not all the banks, but they've got like kind of. 
they got the 80-20 rule there. They've like sort of fixed the banks. Now they've got this inflation problem. And I always tend to, I always like to think that the people in charge are actually much smarter than we give them credit for. And usually when they make these decisions that we don't understand, they have some access to information that that you and I might not have. And I'm wondering, let's say that uh, the Fed and, and Chair Powell understands that we're going to have to do some restructuring of the economy post-COVID. Let's say he understands that we're not going to get back to our 2% you know, inflation rate. Well, the very first thing that I would do is I would get studies or think tanks or whatever influence I have to kind of start coming out with reports saying maybe 2% inflation doesn't really make, where do we get that 2% inflation anyway? You know, you know, maybe really actually three or 4% would be much better for growth. So I could personally see that happening. I'd be curious, like what you think about that, like slightly higher interest rates, slightly higher inflation. The spread between them is, uh, you know, the the interest rates are slightly higher than the inflation. What do you think about that sort of scenario? Well, a couple of things uh, to what you said about. Um, no, uh, the Fed doesn't know anything more than the collective of the public information. I'm going to say they don't know more than me. There are hundreds of people and I'm one person. So right. they know, they know, they know what we collectively in the open markets know. That's all they really know, with one exception, with one exception. And that is they get to see the, the secret banking reports from all the banks because they're the regulators of the banks that we don't get to see. We see an abbreviated version in their quarterly banking earnings reports. They get to see the actual secret business line items. And they still blew it when it came to the <laughs> banking prices. <laughs> the other problem that the Fed has yeah. is groupthink. All right, they're very smart. They're very dedicated. They're trying to do an honest opinion. But look at look at your podcasts and look at everything else. What do you do? You bring in different voices that have different opinions. And we 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 listen to this opinion. We listen to that opinion. We listen to another opinion, and then we try and mesh them all together, draw a conclusion to figure out what's going on. In the Fed, we listen to one opinion. And we listen to several people say the same thing over and over and over again, and they all collectively group think, agree with each other. And that's why they have blind spots to what's going on. As I argued on previous podcasts like this, I, I, I would personally argue that Jay Powell's biggest mistake was he personally intervened to sink Judy Shelton's nomination as a Federal Reserve governor because she was a heterodox. She was a different thinker. Oh, she believed in the gold. She believed in, um, you know, the uh, gold and she believed in the idea of of hard money. OK, fine. You know, it's one of 19 people and she held an opinion that you don't hold at the Fed and the institution couldn't handle it because you want all 19 people to agree with you. And this is why you blew it on inflation and you blew it on banking. And you've gotten you, you left rates at zero for way too long. You were way too late because you don't have that mix of voices. That's what the Fed needs is they need other voices. Every other central bank has that except for the cent except for the Federal Reserve. That's their biggest um, that's their biggest blind spot to your question about should they raise the um, uh, should they raise the inf uh, the inflation target to three or four? First of all, where did the target for two come from? I'll be blunt about it to get my point across. Bernanke pulled it out of his ass. And basically, that's <laughs> essentially what it was. He says he said it was yeah. a made-up number. It was a made-up number. One sounded too low, three sounded too high. You know, and you know, so he just he kind of made it up. And they all kind of went with it. Should they change the target? 
Uh, sure. Uh, and Paul has suggested, and Paul's been asked about this, every five years, the Fed does this Fed listens tour and this framework review. So they share that with communist governments that every five years they rechange, they look, they change their long-term outlook as well. And their next one is in 2025. And Paul suggested that maybe, maybe mm -hmm. they'll revisit the 2% target as part of their policy review in 2025 that would get announced in the middle of 2026. Maybe. So don't hold your breath. It's not going to happen anytime soon uh, if it does at all. But if they decide to override that, and he came out and said, look, we got this blue ribbon commission of a, of a bunch of other PhDs that have decided that the proper number is three or four, and they announced it now, credibility shot. Because hmm. the whole point of the Fed and the whole point of their inflation fighting is they believe that inflation is anchored. If that What that means is that you and me and everybody else, we don't believe that inflation is a problem. So we don't act as if inflation is a problem. Looking for more wage hikes, looking for higher prices, looking for investments that would benefit from, from ever, ever higher levels of inflation. We don't act that way. That's what they believe. Um, I could quibble about that, but let's just stick with that for a second. That's what they believe. If they come out then in a period of stress and say, okay, now that our 2% our goal is hard to achieve, we'll just randomly change it to another number that's easier to achieve, then there's no credibility. Look, in track and field, you could put the high bar at seven feet. And, uh, and I, so try as I can, I'll be about four feet underneath the high bar. You could then lower the high bar four feet and you could still call it seven feet and I could get over it, but it ain't seven feet. And there's no mm. credibility for that. And it's kind of the same thing here. They could change the bar but if they change the bar in a period of stress it, because they're forced to redefine it so they can have a target that they can hit and call it stable inflation at three, or we used to call it stable inflation at two, they blow their credibility. So they have to change it after they've solved this problem. And that's years away. So the point is they're not going to change it, um, nor mm. should they, because I don't think it would serve their interest right now. Mm. Yeah, well said, Jim. So I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts um, on how you think everything that we're talking about here really translates to assets. The last time you were on on the margin, you know, you talked about it's 2021 again and animal spirits were running hot. And I think that was around beginning of this year, right? When we saw right. a, a big rally in crypto and Doge and, you know, GameStop and all that stuff. It looked like tech, it was, tech it was stocks and the S&P and yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. I, I'd love to get your thought, like, you know, now that we're, you know, a couple months, three or four months post that interview um, and definitely like crypto has held up relatively well. You know, I, I, you know, I guess part of me says that maybe that was the bottom and we we're starting to see a rally from here. It could be a, just a relief rally just before another like lower. Would love to just get your thoughts on how all these dynamics that we're talking about, banking, interest rates, how that all ends up translating into asset markets this year. So earlier in this feeds into that question, you asked me about, you know, the binary between it's either all going to go to shit or it's all going to be fine and there's no in between. Um, I think that the in between with this banking crisis is every week people pick up their phones and they 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 move their money to an ETF, a fintech, a T-bill, a money market fund to get higher yields in the TradFi world. It doesn't happen all at once, but it happens consistently over time. And if the Fed raises rates in May, 
speeds it up a little bit more. And that the cumulative effect of that over several weeks, a few months, a quarter or two, gets the banks to start to restrict credit, restrict credit, restrict credit. And that by the time you get to, say, the end of the year, unless something dramatically changes, we're going to have a real credit crunch on our hands. But it is going to happen, you know, between now and the middle of May. It's not going to unfold that fast unless something intervenes to force that, which I don't see happening. <clears throat> so that is where I think we're going. And I think that over time, the marketplace is going to start to realize that. Look, tomorrow the H8 report comes out again. That's the asset consolidated assets and liabilities of the banking system. And I know what everybody's going to do. They're going to look at the deposit base and go, hey, it just fell a little bit. Problem over. No, it's going to fall a little bit every week until that accumulates into a big number. And no, you, no, it's not going to fall $250 billion in one week again, and we're going to look for another bank to fail. And as that realization comes in, those animal spirits are being sucked out of the market. Into, and I'm talking about TradFi right now. Yes, when I was on the podcast, it was actually in November. It was right after uh, FTX November. blew up. Yep, yep. That the, the animal spirits were there and they were there. Until a month ago, March 8th, when Silvergate failed. Uh, and then mm. that has really started to change the animal spirits because you kicked off a giant, what we call a risk-off rally. You kicked off a giant rally in treasury securities. Um, and that has been continuing through this morning. Actually, we made a new low yield in them this morning on the day that we're recording. So I think that those animal spirits are slowly going to come out of the markets. Crypto, I've argued... Look, I'm a bull, I'm bullish on crypto long term and I'm bullish on DeFi long term. And I think it is that I started from the default position that the current financial services business needs to be disrupted and there needs to be another way to do it. And I also think that part of that disruption should involve some form of decentralization that allowing governments to have all of this absolute ironclad control over everybody's money is not good. Maybe not so bad in the US. We saw a problem with the trucker strike last year in Canada. And it definitely is when you start getting into emerging markets about the ability, about the, the safety of the financial system or the ability for the government to literally take your money away from you. And so that's why I've been a big fan of DeFi and I've been a big fan of cryptocurrencies. And I think that over time, they will continue to maybe a move towards that goal of creating a new financial system. And yes, they're a new technology. And with new technology comes explosive growth. And with explosive growth comes fraud and deceit and rugs and everything else. It happened when we built canals. It happened when we built telephones. It happened when we built the internet. It happened with tulip bulbs 400 years ago. I'm not dismissing it. I'm saying it's part of the landscape of a new explosive growth technology is a lot of the frauds, but we'll work those problems out over time. And what I've also argued then is, so therefore, what I would like to see is crypto not be a high beta version of the NASDAQ 100. And for mm. the next last couple of months, it hasn't been a high beta version mm. of the NASDAQ. It is acting like an independent financial system is being built. It's just not a levered version of the triple Qs. They, you know, mm. And so it, it still retains some of that, but the correlations are down quite a bit between the develop mar between the TradFi markets and the crypto markets. Good, if it stays that way, even if it goes down, 
when the stock market or the NASDAQ is going up. Still good because you're building a separate financial system. That's the point of DeFi and that's the point of crypto. And if all it is, is just another object of TradFi speculation, a levered version of triple Qs, it's never going to fulfill its promise. But if it starts to become uncorrelated and it's starting to show that in the last couple of months, and hopefully it will continue, that is good because then people will look at it as an uncorrelated asset. They'll look at it as an alternative because that's what it's presenting itself as. And it'll start taking on those characteristics. Uh, last thought for you about crypto. Uh, I've said this before. Uh, Ed Chancellor wrote a great, a fabulous book. He, he wrote Devil uh, Take the Hindmost. Devil Take the most, Hindmost, yeah. Yeah. His most recent book is called The Price of Time. <clears throat> and he put it out last a couple of months ago. And he looks at the history of banking and debt and money going back to the beginnings of civilization 10,000 years ago. And what struck me about the book was he points out that at the very beginnings of civilization, we invented banking and we invented debt first. Those are the first things we invented. And we used to then use them in a quasi-barter system to this day yield, an agricultural term, still applies to the interest payment on debt because you used to pay it in bushels of corn or in, or in the offspring of, a, of, of, of your livestock or something like that. Then we said, you know what? We need a more efficient way to do this. We invented money to satisfy debt and banking. In crypto, we invented money first. We invented Bitcoin, we invented Ethereum first. And then we said, okay, now we got this money. What are we going to do with it? And that's when we made the big mistake. We invented a casino in order to, to do something with it. What we should have done is we should have invented DeFi first. And we said, mm. oh, wow, we got this decentralized system that we can do all this stuff. What are we going to use with it? All right, let's invent some money to use in the DeFi system. Now, eventually we're going to get there. It's just that I think that the problem is we invented the money first and we needed something to do with the money. So we invented a casino. And this is in, in with the casino came from Montgox on down came all of the problems that we've seen um, when you when you turn it into just a, an object of degen speculation, as opposed to thinking seriously about rebuilding the financial system. I think we're finally starting to get there and hopefully we'll continue to start getting there in terms of thinking about, you know, uh, what is it going to take to have a truly decentralized financial system? Yeah. Yeah. Very well said, Jim. And actually there was a great newsletter from our, uh, from BlockWorks, if I wanted to shill our own book here, uh, just basically talking about this as like base layer technologies when it comes to money. And you can actually argue that credit almost weirdly sits under money, right? To your point, that was like the first thing that we right. invented. And I think, and I think those who, you know, sort of point out, you know, one of the, I wish it didn't have to be so tribal as this, but I, I do think it's a little frustrating sometimes to listen to pure Bitcoin maxis talk about, you know, credit as if it's something that's evil, right? And banking as if it's something that's evil. And I just, I think if you sat down and like really thought about it, you would quickly come to the conclusion that that's not the case, right? You, 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 some amount of debt is is good debt. I do think when it comes to crypto, Bitcoin in particular, the correct lens to look at it is a correction to a, an existing system that is far in breach or in overreach. And what I mean by that is the fiat system, because it's been untethered to any form of hard money or commodity or anything like that, that you know, it didn't ask. It's like a real life version of the paperclip problem, right? There's just so much credit that's created. 
uh, it's caused actually a lot of distortions and problems. And Bitcoin is a an over it is a correction to that overreaction, I think. And then when you add on some of the other parts of crypto, that technological innovation, right, which is creating scarcity in cyberspace without relying on a, a trusted third party, then it was like, well, hey, that innovation that allowed you to create money, well, that could actually be used for more general purpose technology sorts of of uses, right? And that's the Ethereum smart contract movement. So the in theory, actually, you know, the one pushback that I might have to you is like, Bitcoin should trade very differently than the way it trades right now. It should not be a risk on asset. But Ethereum and some of the, the new tech projects that are built on Ethereum, it, I wouldn't actually totally hate it if it traded like a slight, they are new tech projects that are higher risk, higher reward, uh, but the problem is everyone views crypto in this one thing, you know, in this one group. So right now, Bitcoin and the rest of the ecosystem are correlated when kind of they might, it might make more sense from first principles that they don't need to be. So I've obviously given this a lot of thought, but I'd be curious what your response is to that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I agree with you that um, Bitcoin in theory should trade a little bit differently than Ethereum, than a lot of the DeFi products, a lot of the altcoins as well. I could not agree with you more that the biggest problem that the Bitcoin community has is the maxis. They do damage every moment that they continue to exist. And I'm mm -hmm. even calling out Michael Saylor here that, you mm -hmm. know, gets all thrilled that the uh, SEC has declared that everything is a security, but Bitcoin somehow thinking that everything is going to collapse to zero and all that money is going to go into Bitcoin and push it to $250,000. No, when he's done collapsing all of that, he's coming after you and he's going to collapse you as well, too. That Absolutely. you've got to realize that you're all in this together. And what is it that you're trying to fix? Are you trying to fix the money? You're right. It has been untethered. That started in 1971 with the, um, uh, the ending of the Bretton Woods Agreement that we've went to pure fiat currencies without uh, tethering it to anything else. But credit intermediation, giving people that have capital you know, lending it to people that need capital for an appropriate amount of interest rate and risk. That was invented by the Medici's in the 15th century. Fractional banking right. is 400 years old. It literally is 400 years old. Uh, and it has been a force for good for the human experience for 400 years. Now, can it get overdone? Sure. And do we have crises? pretty much regularly because it's a fairly unstable system as well. Is there a better way to do it? Probably. And maybe we could get about trying to figure out what that better way to do it is. And maybe DeFi is part of that mix um, as well. But yeah, I think that if we start thinking about it in these terms, instead of just this pure emotional number go up, that's where I, I'm, I'm, you know, getting on sailors, sailors part, you know, oh, good. Bitcoin's going to go up because we're going to destroy everything in its wake and shove it to $250,000. And then when it gets to $250,000, I'll probably go to prison. But who cares? It wants the $250,000. You know, no, you got to think about this a little bit more pragmatically, that you need an entire financial system, not just a hard fix on the inflation rate of your currency. That's not enough. And that's all Bitcoin offers. That's really important, but it's not enough. Yeah. Other I, than in, that, I have no, I have no opinion on this. Subject. No opinion. No. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Um, you know, Jim, I'd love to maybe leave here actually just addressing, I guess, like two kind of bigger questions for you here, which is 
you know, you and I, right, uh, you know, have talked about this in the past. If you are an avid listener of macro podcasts or you sort of plug into FinTwit, you know, this whole conversation about the dollar and its status as reserve currency, you know, is almost constantly questioned, right? It is right. It's very much the topic du jour. It's been, it has been for years. Recently, I've started to see that creep into other, let's call it more mainstream media outlets. Our mutual friend, uh, Luke Roman, I just saw, I haven't watched the interview yet, uh, did an interview with Tucker Carlson. I'm starting to right. see headlines you know, from some of the Instagram meme pages that I follow about, you know, the BRICS are developing a new currency that's going to compete with the dollar. And as always, you know, it's kind of drawn out the people who say the dollar isn't going anywhere. And then it's kind of drawn out the people that say, hey, you, all you got to do is open up a history book and see that reserve currencies don't last forever. So I guess, you know, my, my two part question for you there is like, you know, I just haven't asked you this in a little while, but hey, what do you, what do you make of this sort of mainstream move and, and, and coverage of, of the dollar? And, uh, you know, just what are your what are your kind of closing thoughts on how, you know, is it just nothing and it's just something the media is grabbing onto? Or is this the beginning of something to be looking at in terms of our reserve currency system? So I'll I'll date myself here. Uh, my first job on Wall Street was 1985. Yeah, mm. it's been that long. And literally the first week of my first job on Wall Street the U.S. became a net debtor country for the first time. It was always a net creditor country. And that immediately came with calls that this is the end of the dollar as the reserve currency. And so, you know, I'm now 38 years later hearing exactly the same thing. And I guess like a stop clock, if we just keep saying it long enough, someday you will say, see, I told you. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. so, so my point yeah. there is that this is not new. This is not new at all. Second point about this is that the U.S. seems to have a big benefit when it comes to having it as the reserve currency. Uh, all trade, like crude oil, gold, it's priced in dollars. So when you look at the price of crude oil and you see it went up or down, you don't have to do an extra calculation of, but that's in dollars and then I have to do the exchange rate to my currency. It removes a giant friction. So we, as Americans, have a huge benefit. The exorbitant privilege is what it was referred to by the French because everything is priced in dollars. So a lot of other countries, and now it's the Saudis and the Russians and the Chinese, don't like that. They would mm. rather that you price oil in their currencies or their products in their currency. So they don't have to take the risk of having the dollar exchange rate and or the ability of the U.S. government to restrict dollar movements among them. Remember, <clears throat> with the Russians, we, we banned them from the, the central bank from, from doing business with all the other central banks, wanted to kick them off of SWIFT. They see that and they say, look, we, we can't trust the dollar anymore. That's their motivation for it. Now, the dollar has been the reserve currency for over half a century. That's usually about the average life of a reserve currency. So it's time to start looking for a new one. But here's what you need. You need something that can trade trillions of dollars a day. You need something that has the rule of law behind it so that we know what it is and it is fully convertible. Now, mm. no other fiat comes close to meeting those goals. The, the yuan doesn't is a small, tiny, it's 1 20th the size of the U.S., uh, dollar in the in, in financial markets, and it's not convertible. You can't, you know, the, the the exchange rate is set not by the marketplace, 
but set by the government of China. So that disqualifies it. The, the euro, the euro is, is still not big enough and it's not growing fast enough to become it. Could a cryptocurrency be uh, the reserve currency? Uh, if, you can get, if you can get it to 50 times the size that they are now, and if you can get to say two to 300,000 transactions a second and show that no matter what, it will never, ever, ever go down for any reason. Talking to you, Solana. You know how I feel about Solana. Uh, and, and so in, in that respect, if, that's, if, if you can get to that, then you've got competition for, reserve, for a new reserve currency. What I'm trying to say is I personally believe the next reserve currency is probably going to be a cryptocurrency, but I also think it might be 10 to 20 years away. It's not going to happen anytime soon because none of them are even remotely close. You can't pay. You can't even pay for all the lattes in Starbucks with the transaction speeds that we have now, um, yep. or let alone you know the 800, the 80 million barrels a day of crude oil that we pump out, or the 800 million barrels of crude oil that trades every day. Not to mention gold. Not to mention world trade. Not to mention international transfers that run trillions of dollars a day within the banking system. There's only one unit of account that can handle all of that. That is fully traded and has the rule of law behind it. It's the U.S. dollar. So yes, yeah. what I'm saying is, you fill some, you give me something that can fill those. Uh, uh, criteria that the U.S. dollar has, and I'll bet you the U.S. dollar loses its reserve currency status in five seconds. But you're mm. a decade easy, if not longer, away, from anything coming close to replacing the U.S. dollar. If we tried to replace it with a bunch of illiquid, problematic currencies like the yuan, like the Russian ruble, like the euro, we will have made everything worse off. So that's why I think at the end of the day, it's just talk right now, and it's really not going to go anywhere. Um, the, and so we'll see where, where this goes, but I'm not holding my breath that the U.S. is going to lose its reserve currency status anytime soon. I was, I was just going to say, you know, Jim, you've got a couple of years of, of experience on me, but I actually had a, a similar realization where I, I, I read, you know, Market Wizards, obviously pretty famous text in Wall Street. And I believe that was 89. So just a couple of years after you've got your first job. And you know that for for folks who aren't familiar, there were there were interviews with sort of the top traders of the day. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones was was interviewed for that book by by Jack Schwager, and it was it was just interesting because even back then, right, exactly what you just mentioned, right, the uh, U.S. is the debtor country, we're running deficits now, and the the reserve currency status is is going to be in question any day now. And here we are, X many years later. I think just as a just as a nerd of of history, uh, you know, the one thing I would point out to that is. It's tough to get the exact timing of these sorts of things, but trends throughout history are are clear. And something that's often lost when you're reading a textbook is, you know, oh, this happened, then then that happened. But there could be 15 or 20 years in between event A and B, right? Obviously, human time works very differently. We've just lived those 15 or 20 years. It makes timing very difficult. But that's just my rambling to end all this. Jim, this has been a phenomenal interview, and I always look forward to our, our chats when we get to catch up. Um, if folks want to find out more about you or the good work that you do, uh, what's, what's the best way to follow you or, or subscribe? Well, probably the best way is social media. Um, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at Bianco Research or under Jim Bianco um, on, on uh, social media. Uh, make sure, you know, I pay my eight bucks. Make sure you follow the guy with the blue check mark. And the reason I say that is, when you're in the financial business, there's, I don't know how many scammers, spoof accounts or, or, or clone accounts of me that block me. So I don't see them. 
And then basically, if you follow them, they DM you and they try to get you to send them money. And it infuriates me that they're using my likeness and image to do that. But the only person who can fix that is Elon Musk. So that's why I pay my $8 a month for the blue check mark. So you make sure you get me with the lots of Twitter followers or on LinkedIn or at our, our website, BiancoResearch.com. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Jim. This has been a fun conversation as always. Love to do it again soon. Thank you.